Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there and welcome to another Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute and School of Politics and International Relations. With me in the studio is my colleague Paul Pickering, Professor Paul Pickering, also from the Australian Studies Institute, a a very storied historian of his own right and uh, a long-term ANU uh, luminary. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. And with us, as always, is Dr. Maria Teflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations, joining us remotely today, so um, uh, not in the studio, but hopefully uh, to all intents and purposes will sound as if she is. How are you, Maria? Through the magic of podcasts. Yes. Uh, I'm very well, thanks. Excellent. Now, what I thought, what we thought we would do today is, bearing in mind that we're recording this on Tuesday morning, uh, the morning after the final airing or the, the third episode in the triptych of, uh, of documentaries or the docuseries called Nemesis about the period of coalition government after the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years. Uh, and so I thought we'd just, uh, you know, have a good conversation about that and some of the issues it raised and perhaps, you know, think about it in the context of what's happened since but also... Um, you know, some of those previous documentaries started off with Labor and Power in 1993, and then there was, uh, then there was the Howard years, then there was the Killing Season. These are all <laughs> these have all been uh, compelling television in their own right. What what's your view, Maria, at the end of the series, the third episode of Nemesis, the one that focused on the Morrison government, the one in the middle, Turnbull, and the first one, Abbott. What's your impression as a as a bit of a scholar of the Liberal Party? You've done a lot of research in, in the Liberal Party over the years. I thought it was a, a sort of fascinating exercise. I guess a couple of things that really stood out to me were, one, I think Malcolm Turnbull, I, I would imagine he might be quite annoyed that the episode of his prime ministership really just focused on the soap opera of his gaining power and then losing it. And not it didn't really focus terribly much on the substance of his premiership, which was in stark contrast to the episode on Morrison, which was significantly uh, more substantive and much more policy focused. Though, of course, there were was the interesting omission of the robo debt saga, which I think is a significant oversight in this series as a as a, overall. But also, I suppose the other questions around governance and so-called corruption that plagued this 
this government in particular. Uh, the other thing that I thought that was really quite, I suppose, interesting about this series was that was just the, the overall emphasis on the sort of soap opera of it and, mm. and the claims by some members that there had been a really successful government, which which I don't think the documentary series necessarily lent evidence towards. And, and also one that is kind of hard for, I think, the average viewer to look back and articulate, whereas I think with someone like John Howard or Bob Hawke, I think it's a lot easier for the average voter to say they were successful governments and to really think of things that happened in those terms that really mattered. Well, you've just named John Howard and, and Bob Hawke. Funnily enough, they're our only two multiple-term uh, multiple PMs mm. that you can think of in the last 30 years. I mean, it's astonishing when you think about it how Morrison in between 2019 and 2022 became the first Prime Minister since Howard had done it in 96. That is, Howard had done it for the first time in 96 to 98. That was the last time that a first-term Prime Minister had got elected and then still been there to lead his party to an election the next time around. Uh, that's an astonishing thing to think about in itself, how, how completely different politics has been since those big constellations of, of political authority that were represented by Hawke uh, with, with Keating at the end and then, and then Howard. Um, everything since has been a drama. What, what was your feeling, Paul, uh, on, on those questions? Well, I, um, interestingly, I found this my, looking at the series as a historian, as a and as a document, mm. um, and precisely because of the question you raise of why aren't these people better known for what they did, mm. as opposed to what they did to each other, or how they went? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it was very. It was a document about people's interaction with each other without really any substance to it and so policy substance to it whereas with Howard you could talk about the GST Hawke you could work talk choices. Which, work yeah. choices mm. with, with Hawke you could talk about the big you know consensus and mm. Medicare Medicare um, a lot and, actually yeah yeah and, and really what would you talk about with Turnbull, I thought one of the one of the best comments was that when he went down the track of innovation and so forth, he was really telling people that they might end up unemployed um, as a result of technological change. Yeah, what was that uh, comment that someone made that um, he says uh, technology and uh, innovation and that just is read by a lot of people as a machine is going to do your job? Yeah, precisely. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, – and I, I, Well, the Nats uh, would see it like that. <laughs> uh, and the other interesting point was that that – Many of his colleagues said that the long campaign meant that he ended up with nothing to say. Um, but in fact, he started off with really nothing to say. Yeah. I mean, we've spoken about this before, but I, my, I've, I've long had this theory, having been around in, in, the, in the press gallery all through this period, that Turnbull was that what we had underappreciated, we being sort of the voters and, and, and the commentary at anyone analysing it, what we had underappreciated when Turnbull came back in 2015 when he replaced Abbott is that he was, you know, taking back the leadership that had been taken from him by Abbott at the end of 2009 when he'd got 
way out in front of the party as as, as most people interpreted it over climate change, mm. over emissions trading, which he was seeking to negotiate with the then Rudd government over. And and the Turnbull that we saw come back into the leadership, which by now was in government, so it meant he was Prime Minister, he had none of the ambition that he had back in 2009. The things for which he was known, his commitment to the Republic, his commitment to emissions trading, um, his commitment to uh, same-sex marriage or marriage reform, these kinds of things, they were all put on the back burner because that was the Faustian pact that he had entered into with the with the, the the right of the party, the more conservative of the party, in agreement for knocking off Abbott in 2015. So yes, you can be the leader because you've got a good relationship with voters and you have a better than even chance of saving us at the next election. But no, you can't raise any of the things for which you actually are popular. And that was the problem. They took a guy who was popular with voters among Liberals and they stripped him of the things or he agreed to be stripped of the things for which he was popular among voters, you know, the things that made him modern and moderate and progressive and so forth. And so you had this kind of um, this kind of period of drift. You know, he had sort of kookiness under Abbott, all kinds of wacko things happening, um, you know, knighting the Prince Prince Philip and 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 the like. Uh, and then and then you had the sanity of Turnbull, but it was a kind of there was a sort of a hollowness to it. Yes, he 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 proceeded very purposefully with the national energy guarantee, for example, the so-called NEG. And he took it to the party room twice, but he never took it to the House of Representatives because he was scared that he was going to be rolled or there was going to be a, a mutiny of at least some Nats and, and backbenchers, even though he probably would have got it through with Labor's support anyway. And so he ended up having that whole problem of looking a bit pointless. Well, I think I think it actually kind of points to what I think is actually the story of this government, right, which is essentially policy reversals. Abbott was elected to reverse much of the agenda of the Rudd-Gillard years. Yes, particularly the climate, uh, the the carbon taxes, he called it. That's right. Virtually every achievement Tony Abbott had was actually covered in this documentary series because he governed for such a short amount of time. And, And so much of his time in office was defined by reversing a set of promises and a type of compact he had with the electorate that he wouldn't change very much and then afraid of being a Malcolm Fraser he introduced that infamous budget that we you know the 2014 budget Mm. and and I think what is interesting about Turnbull is that you know I I agree with you that you know he made the the Faustian bargain with the nationals ushering in for the first time that the written agreement with the coalition which had previously just been a gentleman's handshake which is actually really important institutional development that is secret and un, 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 un understood. Yes, in my view, inappropriate, yeah, because yeah, of that secrecy. Yeah. I would say time is a critical factor here. I mean, the whole, the, the shows themselves are a compression of time. Mm. So they make things more dramatic than they are, even those final weeks, which, of course, Mark, you had, your, you know, is really pressed up against the glass there. So you can see the, the tension in a very short period of time. But what I think it underlies is one crucial strategic mistake on Turnbull's part, which really wasn't canvassed in the sense that he came in with such popularity. People, I think across the electorate, people who normally aren't 
invested in politics, wanted to see the back of Abbott. Mm. Hence his his popularity ratings went through the roof. Mm. That was the moment to go to an election. Yeah, so this was in September, August, September of uh, 2015 yeah. when, when, um, uh, when Abbott went over the cliff, as it were, when, when Turnbull uttered the famous... He's had 30, failed 30 news polls uh, <laughs> and wished he hadn't. I should shout out to Peter Harcher on this one because my colleague Harcher at the time um, was the only person who said, from what I could tell, the only person who said at the time that Turnbull will come to regret that 30 news poll metric. And I thought at the time, I thought, oh, come on, 30 news polls, that's a long way into the future, you know. But it actually happened. That's the way it played out. And, and when Turnbull had lost 30 news polls, they were, you know, they were killing him over it. Uh, they were coming for him and uh, they were coming for him using his own words about legitimacy and so forth. Yeah, and I mean, if you think that at the moment where he took over when there was such a shine um, and he, if he'd gone to an election, he was likely to have won and he was likely to have got then a series of uh, backbenchers who owed their careers to him, then he wouldn't have needed that Faustian Pact. He could have he could have faced them down in a way. Yeah, I agree. He could have, uh, and as, as I was saying to you before, I think he could have laundered um, the 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 replacement. You know, the sort of killing of Abbott, if I can put it like that, by putting it to the voters. Effectively, going to the voters straight away and saying, "I've taken over. There's going to be restoration of uh, of sanity and 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 sort of mainstream orderly politics here." cabinet government, all that sort of thing, and I'm putting it to the voters. And then my relationship as a prime minister, assuming I come through that, is with the voters. That's that's the primary responsibility I have, not to a bunch of factional hacks in the in the Liberal Party and the Nats. I um, think that's such a heroic interpretation of what would have happened. I just I just don't think that trying to have a personal relationship with the Australian people can can overcome the realities of who your colleagues are and the fact that you have to make internal deals with them. I mean, a, another way to interpret what Turnbull did, um, you know, and I don't disagree with with what you're saying, I, you know, he, in hindsight, going to an early election probably would have suited him and served him better because he would have had greater authority and been able to dominate his party, which is what he would have needed to do to be successful. But you could say that Turnbull, by showing restraint, had actually learnt something about himself, about his previous time as leader and about the mess that the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years had sort of made, which is, you know, why he chose to sort of try to demonstrate his credentials as prime ministers. And if you think about that, that's that's quite a positive trait. And if you think about the early days of his premiership, they were kind of actually structured around trying to actually have debates, like the one around the GST, for example. Which he wasn't he, happy about because, uh, in fact, he thinks right. that Scott Morrison was front-running on that as treasurer and causing all kinds of problems and accused. We saw this in Nemesis, you know, there were there were – Morrison and he had sort of set twos about this because Turnbull was of the view that Morrison was was you know promoting this idea um, and uh, um, causing the government kind of friction in those early days and making Turnbull's leadership look a bit disorganised. Yeah, but but there is a bigger structural question there, which we've talked about before on this podcast, which is. Well, I mean, if you want people to have substantive debates, like it actually has to be a bit messy and it has to have like some degree of uncertainty, yes. you know, which is which is something that characterized the Hawke years famously. We all celebrate that. And and I do think that's actually a question for us as citizens and particularly the media 
to sort of really actually reflect on and 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 I you know for whatever reason we all say yes debate is important we should have disagreement blah 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 but then we go back to once again criticizing people for having like minor disagreements on you know within a within a broad amount of consensus within a group of people who feel like there should be smaller amounts of tax for mm. example but isn't that in in both the case of the uh, Gillard and Turnbull they're hanging on by the skin of their teeth and that um any substantial debate might produce someone crossing the floor, whereas I don't think Hawke or Howard ever got into the situation where they were worried about losing the vote in the House of Representatives. And so that changes the nature of um, the, uh, engagement. It and does I, tend to focus the mind, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, it, does. it does exactly. And I mean, and the, and the bizarre attempt to get another vote with Peter Slipper, mm. for example. Yeah. I mean, there's an act of desperation. I have to say as a footnote too, Maria, I'm always happy to be accused of a heroic interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I think we should also say for the sake of uh, completeness that we had Malcolm Turnbull on this podcast and I did put to him that very point about whether, um, in fact, I tried to get him to concede a number of things that I thought the government could have done better. And, <laughs> uh, like most prime ministers, he he did everything right, by and large, you know, and that is the case. I'm not singling out Malcolm Turnbull for this. I, I've not met a prime minister who didn't do basically everything right and was misinterpreted and Scott Morrison's, uh, you know, the, the, the exemplar of, of that kind of thing, never did anything wrong. But Turnbull did say it was the one thing in which he conceded that perhaps he should have gone to the election in 2015, late 2015. And then he put forward the argument, uh, he said something like, but we didn't have any money. Um, Abbott had done very little fundraising. The Liberal Party was in no state to fight an election. You know, he was in touch with, obviously, Brian Lochnane, the um, federal director, and the party was in no sort of preparedness for a federal election. And, of course, we know when the election did happen, almost six months into uh, 2016, uh, that... Turnbull tipped in $1.75 million of his own money to, uh, you know, bolster the party to get over get it over the line. And he rather unwisely made a bit of a crack about that during Nemesis as well, um, just emphasising how different his life is from <laughs> just about everyone else's. Uh, but it is interesting, you know, I, I, I um, to, to your assertion about it being a heroic uh, um, interpretation, Maria, I'd say this, that... The problem for the Tur for the Turnbull premiership was that it had a lot of promise in 2015, and it, by 2016 it had deflated virtually all of it before it got to the election. And that's actually why I say, had it gone to an election, had Turnbull gone to the polls on the basis of having changed the prime minister and 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 restoring cabinet government and everything else, and the general feeling of sort of sanity that prevailed as a result of Turnbull's uh, takeover. I think uh, the government was in good shape to survive. I mean, it had a – let's not forget, Abbott won 90 seats to 55 in – to Labor's yeah. 55 in 2013. There was a huge buffer there. Turnbull lost all but one of those seats yeah. in the election Precisely. in 2016. And I don't think that would have happened in 2015. And I think the extra – once he lost all but one seat, he was finished from that yes. point. Right. He he actually conceded that. Yeah, I, and I'm, so and so had he had he gone in twenty fifteen 
when he was ascendant, when there was a lot of good press around, uh, when there was a sort of a sense in the community of kind of relief that that the uh, the bizarreness of Abbott's government was over, I think that would have bolstered his authority and probably given him more legitimacy to take on the chieftains in his party. Almost certainly. I, I, I don't disagree with any of that. My, my point is actually slightly different. It's It's about Turnbull, I think, having actually tried to undergo a process of reflection, having lost the leadership in 2009, which ironically, and which Willisie didn't really point out, it's actually almost mirrored in how he lost it in uh, 2018 mm. um, with the the sort of sensible, hard-nosed right, some of the very same people but who were then in 2009 in more junior roles, basically busting out the same set of moves or or rather responding to the same set of pressures in the sense of the party not being able to find a way to come together on climate change. So so I guess to, to sort of just to reiterate it, you know, Turnbull I think has actually reflected on or had reflected when he became Prime Minister on the fact that there were parts of his character that made him ill-suited to running a political party and that his management <laughs> of that political party and its requirements he 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 you know he failed at and, and John Howard had a similar experience and lost the leadership you know in a similar way and came back as prime minister operating in a different way and i think that's what i was trying to say mm, yeah, it's a very Turnbull it's a very good point yeah. was attempting to do and because he lost all of his authority after losing the second largest majority in post war history yeah he was cooked he was completely he, he, Yeah, it's a good point. He had overlearned the lesson in a sense of losing the leadership. And the way I described it at the time was that there was deeper emotional scarring about having lost the leadership than had been mm-hmm. sort of outwardly appreciated, I think. And it showed up in this this almost paranoia about keeping the party sweet rather than worrying about the voters. And the trouble was it was the reason, same very similar sort of reason why Rudd got control of the Labor Party in 2006, and that is... The hardheads in the party in both cases decided this dude has a relationship with the voters. This dude can take us to victory at the next election. And that's why Labor went to Rudd, even though he didn't have the kind of factional basis. It's why the Libs desperate in 2015 as they were sort of heading for for disaster, heading for the rocks, decided to go for Turnbull. And they didn't, you know... He, the fact that he agreed to sort of keep the party sweet and governed all the time with with one eye over his shoulder, I think turned his government into a, um, a far less creative and ambitious operation. I don't discount at all, Maria, your very valid point that there is a sort of a fundamental nature of the party reality that needs to always be taken into account here and perhaps no amount of behavioural change could have overcome <laughs> some of those things. The final thing I'll say about Turnbull is that, you know, he really sort of struggled with the, I suppose, razzle-dazzle of politics, you know. Like if you recall, if you cast your mind back to that time, it always looked like the government was about to blow up along ideological 
lines and that Turnbull was trying to like wrestle cats through the hat, the Senate. And it all just looked like it was never going to come off. And then he would, it would, he would, he would pull the rabbit out of the hat and the legislation would go through like the, the schools deal, for example, which is probably the most significant reform that, that he landed and, and is sort of partially still in place. Um, but it just never looked like they were crushing it. And so he never got the credit for well, it's hard to crush it with a one seat majority though. Indeed, indeed. But he just never got the credit for basically grinding out result after result when no one thought he could. Even though actually, like, they did grind out result after result. Except for obviously the last one on the neg where the whole whole show blew up. And I think that's sort of part of the the kind of idea about like whether or not a government is actually traveling well, you know. Mm. And I th- I think that's an important part of like why his time in office is well why it was so focused on the drama of it all because i guess it was consumed by the the personality drama of it all even though he was trying and i think actually broadly speaking successfully a, a, a prime minister geared towards substance well it was nice to have a prime minister who was capable of um you know articulation who who understood language who could explain things i mean yes he was loquacious and um, prolix and all of those things at times and perhaps some voters were never going to relate to him and Peter Credlin's uh, Mr Harborside Mansion jibe uh, during the election campaign was absolutely devastating. Um, <laughs> I mean, that didn't didn't uh, go unnoticed on the North Shore and didn't go unnoticed everywhere else as well. So, mm. Yeah, and I mean, he trotted out this notion that, well, he entered politics at 50 mm. and that explains a lot of his, his, his mistakes in um, – dealing with the electorate and and he also had the hide and I think it was I think he was being disingenuous as <laughs> as, Barnaby as, Joyce, Barnaby. as Barnaby said at one point in time um about well these bullying billionaires as if you know he he you know sort of the pot calling the kettle black even though he wasn't a billionaire he was he was a multimillionaire mm. um but this idea that he had um I, I think he was ironic in some of the comments that he said it, on the show, in a way that the others weren't. Well, yeah, it's a good point. He was, and and it's interesting you make the point about disingenuous, correct pronunciation, uh, disingenuousness, because in a way, and I suppose is what you're saying as well, Maria. We'll have to take a break here, obviously, but mm. um, there was a sort of a disingenuous nature to Turnbull's premiership because you knew that he stood for things different than necessarily the things that he was preoccupying himself with and that kind of thing really you know that sort of authenticity problem really does start to erode a government and you know you can sort of smell the weakness within it uh, as well as outside of it um and i think uh it it really it sort of led to a, the feeling that it was a bit of an ersatz sort of government rather than um mm-hmm. than and, you know howards you never had that impression at all. Howard was very strongly, you know, he had that sort of conservative bead, but he also had the understanding of where the mainstream voters were and he sort of navigated those two things, kept them kept them in tandem as it were uh, for most of the time and it was it was, you know, it was a successful exercise in political governing. We really haven't seen it a successful exercise in political governing since Howard and that's that's um Perhaps what we're starting to see now, but 
but we shall see. I mean, the the, the reversal on stage three is, a, is is perhaps a good example of that. Let's take a quick break and come back and 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 perhaps talk a little bit about now the the uh, the third trimester of that uh, series, Nemesis. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing Columns of Fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. It, it It is, as you were just saying, Maria, the largest and most awkward. It was also in some ways, I thought, Paul, perhaps a, maybe this is a bit unfair, but a, possibly the most boring episode as well. Like it was, uh, you know, wh- why do you think that was? I mean, the nature of the, the beast? Yeah, well, I, I found it the most boring. Um, uh, and I think partly, almost entirely, that's because there wasn't a challenge. A leadership change, there yeah. There wasn't a leadership yeah. challenge in, yeah. that, in yeah. that period. So you didn't have all the intrigue that absolutely- Yeah, there were no machinations tried. going on other than the fact that, I mean, it was more about uh, his engagement with the electorate mm. rather than his relationship to his colleagues. And in fact, they tried, I, I think they tried to manufacture some of that in a way that it probably was, well, I think it was definitely less important to his, I mean, he mucked it up himself. There was there was no sense, Maria, was there, of, of Morrison really being under challenge after he'd won that miracle uh, 2019 election? Uh, no, because, I mean, you know, it actually goes directly to the point of, of authority. He won, he won a miracle election and therefore he had a great deal of authority. That's interesting because I actually found this to be the most interesting episode from, from my <laughs> perspective. But I guess it, it possibly reflects just a difference in, in, in taste. Um, I mean, I, I did think it was interesting that, that they really kind of, I suppose, front-loaded the moderate critics, but not necessarily the right-wing critics of Morrison, of which there were many. Uh, early on in the episode, you, you certainly saw those, um, you know, Erica Betts, for example, complaining about how much money they spent, which which proved to be quite important to the the sort of dying days of, of Morrison's prime ministership and, and standing. And then, of course, you sort of had, uh, I suppose, James Patterson as a, as a sort of more right-wing critic. But, you know, I actually thought that in some ways that – the 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 sort of deconstruction of Morrison's premiership was probably possibly more devastating than the other two because it really did sort of go to both character a, a, and governance, i.e., competence. And even though I, I think it was actually quite a good point they made, and one that we should remember that you know he did govern through the pandemic and was very successful on quite a few fronts. You know, it did ultimately sort of reflect 
someone who whose inability i suppose to move past certain personal characteristics or personal preferences ultimately brought them down both internally i mean like the whole point about like Frydenberg becoming leader again was just sort of a bit nauseating um that there was just a yet yet another leadership challenge being cooked up but also i think i made that point earlier that like actually quite a few of the scandals that racked that government were not even covered by this documentary because they ran out of time yeah well i mean it seemed to me like it was uh an episode for a different a different documentary uh, precisely, precisely because of the dynamics, uh, the dynamics of it, and in relation to your point about him being successful, and for part of it during the pandemic in particular, I think that almost was it. Um, that was conceded by his opponents. There's that uh, a comment uh, from Mark McGowan who refuses to give the the comment, which obviously they're expecting to be negative, and there's the bit by. Uh, Dan Andrews, which almost sneaks in and sneaks out, where he he recognises that um, that Morrison did some good things. So I think that changes the dynamic at that point. But it still doesn't get it into. I mean, it seemed to me to be an episode about the failure of a government rather than uh, the internal failure of a party, which led to a failure of the government. Yeah, I, look, I, I would sort of broadly defend the the form of this kind of documentary because it is, it it cannot deconstruct policy. Uh, it cannot um, afford to dwell too long in one particular area or go into too much detail. It's really about getting inside accounts of what was happening inside the party and what was happening inside the government, what people actually thought as distinct for what was the official line at the time, and to that extent. It's an extremely intriguing process. It can't do everything. It can't do all those other things as well. Um, but it, of course, of course, it does have have its limitations in that regard. And so we don't get a lot of policy. I mean, f- for example, one of the things that you could say about the Morrison government uh, having won the twenty nineteen election is that it won that election by essentially not being Bill shortened, by tearing to pieces Labor's very extensive and ambitious manifesto, which had a number of new taxes and 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 sort of imaginative policies. It was a a bold manifesto that Labor was putting forward, at least in terms of, you know, contemporary politics. Um, it showed up, it, it was a form almost of hubris from opposition, which is a contradiction in terms, but there was this sense that Labor was transitioning to government before it got to the election. Um, and Morrison saw that, the advertising man, the opportunist, the communicator saw how to deconstruct that and did it very well. And, you know, he that sort of one-man show got them over the line. The real only policy justification for election in their own right, other than what they weren't was the, the the stage one, two, three tax reforms. And that was all legislated in 2019 from from memory. So really you had a government that even by the end of the year in which it had obtained re-election, Morrison had only been there a year or so before that, you had a government that had no real agenda. And had it not been for COVID coming along, 
it would have been in deep and profound trouble anyway. It, it, I mean, look what they dredged up, the ridiculous religious discrimination bill, for example, when they were sort of finally looking around for something to do and suddenly they were, they were producing a bill which was the response of zero public clamour um, and yet they were pretending it was some central matter of uh, you know defining the rights of Australians going forward and it eventually fell over, it eventually collapsed internally. Um, but the government... You know, this is the point really about the Morrison government is that you subtract uh, the, the the pandemic and all of the emergency measures they had to undertake and the all-consuming nature of that right through that term and you really have a government that's doing nothing and really stood for nothing um, and it showed. It, it's, it showed. It not only and, – and bear in mind that when the pandemic hoves into view, Morrison is in deep trouble over the bushfires. Mm-hmm. And sports rorts has come out at the start of that year as well, I think, the, the first revelations of that, the audit uh, audit office report, you know, the colour-coded spreadsheets and all those sorts of things. We know there were other difficulties the government had, but essentially it was a government that was really, really had, it was like the dog that caught the car, right? It, yes, it had won the election, it hadn't expected to, and it just didn't really have a an agenda for it. Yeah, and I guess to build on the points that both of you have made, right, like, I think that was actually kind of the point is that the the government had been reduced down to like this is an exaggeration but effectively like a one man band and so in some ways and that one man was a bit strange yeah, well he well, also wanted to be a one man band mm. that's right and so the, you know like you, would, you Paul you were talking about how the dynamics of the show shifted because colleagues were no longer quite relating to each other and you know and that you can sort of see how that is a product of one Morrison's leadership style, but two, COVID isolation actually really reinforcing that dynamic. And so all of these relationships are actually in large part these individuals relating to either Scott directly or the his his actions. And you know, I think your point about humorous mark is is sort of spot on and, and Christopher Pine very helpfully put that one up in lights. But John Howard, in a very sort of subtle and courteous way, kind of made that point where he said that the government had nothing to offer in terms of an economic future, right, which which Morrison chose to contest. Now, one of my favourite moments in the third episode, it was quite early, was when Russell Broadbent <laughs> recounts the story about how he's having dinner with uh, Ted Bailey and, and Petro Giorgio, a couple of uh, Giorgio, a couple of uh, liberal moderates, uh, ex-politicians in a sense, and he's used to them ribbing them, and they start telling him about this. Um, you know, right? This is sort of 2019, 2020, just in the end, toward the end of 2019. You know, of course, cities are bathed in smoke. The bushfire emergency has been going on for some time now. People have already died and they start telling him that the Prime Minister has left the country on a Jetstar flight and he says, oh, you know, don't be ridiculous. That wouldn't happen. You know, he, he just assumes they're, they're ribbing him and they, and they, and, you know, they show him the phone. I just thought it was such a telling moment. Uh, it was a great way of conveying the incredulity which I think the whole nation felt at that moment that the Prime Minister had left that he'd instructed his office, which, by the way, instantly got the blame for the subterfuge, uh, as is the uh, prime minister, former prime minister's want. But uh, you know, the media were being told weren't being told where the prime minister was. The normal protocol of 
putting out a statement and having a, an acting prime minister and so forth, that hadn't hadn't happened. And Broadbent was just flabbergasted. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a, a shocker. <laughs> it, I mean, and particularly the excuse was that he'd promised his uh, family a trip. Uh, I mean, Ooh, that's it's just fine. irrelevant. It's just irrelevant. Yeah, well, I mean, it's fine to promise your family a trip, I guess, but not when you're a prime minister during a national crisis. Mm. And of course, then that totally, um, he, he was then totally unable to be prime minister when he got back in terms of the way in which he engaged. Yeah, because everything <laughs> after that was about trying to repair the fact that he'd been gone, that it had been a secret, that he'd said, I don't hold a hose in an interview as some sort of justification. Everything then was about trying to patch up, which could never be patched up, the egregious insensitivity uh, of that. Right. And one of the most, um, I guess, te uh, telling moments for historians to linger over is that encounter that he comes that's filmed with people who are uh, victims of fire um, where no one will shake his hand and he's desperate to actually put his hand on someone's shoulder or or and then he he turns his back and walks away from yeah I mean it's just it's a shocker it's it's a and I mean they didn't recognize the potential for that. So it was so ham-fisted. Well, they, they did in a sense because even when it, my, my memory, uh, I remember thinking this at the time, my memory is that he came back early from the Hawaii trip, uh, you know, because he had to. Um, and, but then there was a period of some days before he went to the fire ground because they knew that this was basically going to be, you know, very difficult. It was going to result in some, some confrontations with, people who'd lost everything and who were under extreme circumstances. And I think they eventually they had to do it because they couldn't delay it forever and they had to do it and they went down there and it was the PR disaster. But that incident you mentioned, uh, the, 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 probably the signature one where he grabs the woman's hand to and you know basically makes her shake hands with him and she says, I'll only shake hands with you if you promise to do more for this community or whatever it is. At which point some bozo steps in, some old guy, and starts basically manhandling her away from the Prime Minister, which I was infuriated. I'm sure many people were. And the Prime Minister at that point showed an utter absence of leadership because he should have then stepped in and said, no, 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 this is important. The things need to be said here. I'm here to listen. I'm here to, you say what you have to say. I'm, 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 I'm here to help. A, a true leader would have done that, would have seized that moment and tried to turn that negative into something else. Instead, you see Morrison sort of standing off the back of this uh, the, as this old guy counsels this woman not to be rude to the Prime Minister. The whole thing was a debacle. I mean, it wasn't even a failure of leadership. Well, of course it was, but it was also uh, a failure of Morrison, the marketing man, not to see yeah. that, that that was going to be an absolute disaster right there and then. Yeah, so. and a failure of humanity, frankly. I mean, I think that incident is a really strong crystallisation of, I think, a lot of the themes that had circled around Morrison and the Liberal Party for many years around his maleness, right, and his masculinity, and that incident where I think he is actually the, the old guy is uh, either the mayor or the local councillor for the National Party well, he in that part of the world. Yeah, yeah. But it's sort of um, 
because if you actually recall that, you know, part of Morrison's justification for being away was he essentially blamed Jenny and the kids and Jenny and the kids became this sort of <laughs> um, meme. If Yeah, exactly, and the girls, that's right. That became a kind of meme, right, a satirical meme that people were throwing around. And if you recall, a lot of the um, – in the media debate around whether or not Morrison's absence was a problem or not was was definitely driven along ideological lines, but there was also a, like a clear gender split as well. And I think people who are not really that political, but like Gretel Colleen, just like completely unloading on right wing kind of hacks defending the prime minister became these kinds of lightning rod moments and and it had come after the sort of hubris of winning the the election those reports about Morrison's inner circle in the Australian you know these sort of power puff pieces in which like there was like no, no women in his inner circle and it's actually reflected in the way that that women participate in this series. Absolutely. They are always Absolutely. on the periphery. They are never central key players. In part because Julie Bishop is not interviewed, and in part probably to do with some of the reticence of someone like a, a Maurice Payne, who's just not that kind of a, a political operative. But it but I mean the reality is is that they're kind of like a Greek chorus. Um, Absolutely. You know, looking into this endless male kind of show. And I thought it was really, like, I found it amusing when Paul Barry, the pollster, sort of said, um, well, Tony you know, Labor to. Tony Barry. Tony Barry, yes, my apologies. Uh, see, he, he he sort of complained that Labor turned the 2022 election into a personality contest, but that's exactly how Morrison won the 2019 election campaign by by leveraging. He was just this ordinary bloke who loved who loved the sharks and was a great guy, you know. And I, I thought it was quite fascinating that one of the things Morrison seemed to most sincerely regret was that he, quote, lost his emotional connection with the Australian people. Whereas I think one of the key themes of this episode with his colleagues, with the Australian people, and potentially even with himself is, who is this guy? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a very good question. It's Um, interesting, isn't it, that we've talked mostly about the episode that we all said we thought was the worst one. Well, I suppose it's the most recent one. We, I, I still think it was fascinating, but it was more recent. I suppose some of the things were a bit less novel in the mind because they were a bit more recent in the mind, like a, a bit less novel to, to, to see when you when you saw them. You know. Yeah, and I mean the, Maria's point is absolutely correct. The, throughout all three episodes, including the one um, involving Julia Gillard, uh Women and the role of women is quite muted, mm. um, I, and I think that's and it's not that's not character that's not a result of not them not wishing to be interviewed. Um, it's just the extent to which those interviews are obviously less uh, used. Well, and it and it, you know it frames Maria the the a government that's like a three terms of government that started out with a cabinet of eighteen men and one woman, and and sort of grudgingly and symbolically addressed that to some extent. And we heard someone say in the episode last night that in the end Morrison had more women in his cabinet than any prime minister had had up until that point. But none of them had any real sway. None of them had any power. As you say, Morrison's inner circle was all men. His his staff were overwhelmingly men. And there, was, there, there, were, there were no women interviewed in the series who 
were kind of movers and shakers. Perhaps cash came closest at one point. Uh, Indeed. Um, but really just in terms of her sort of pivotal, um, I guess, position in WA as a kind of a conservative from WA along with Corman. But she, she, I think by then, had started to run into trouble under Morrison's time in, yeah. in office. She denies um, sobering, though, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> That all, it was in, in disingenuous or yeah. sobering, which yeah. was the one that was going to take the That cake. was actually one of the big victims of the, was the language English got English language. Yeah. yeah. Hey, just in the last uh, couple of minutes, I just want to get your reflections on, because um, I was quite happy in a way, and this might sound strange from a, a journalist, but I was quite happy that there weren't journalists involved. It was all just first, you know, it was all the players involved in the, in the party room. And and a few exceptions to that were the aforementioned Tony Barry and a couple of really senior public servants, Martin Parkinson, who'd been head of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, Jane Holton, former head of health and who'd been playing that role in the vaccine task force. Both of their interventions were spectacular, I thought. Parkinson, Maria, describing the failure on climate change as the biggest public policy neglect he had ever seen in his in his lifetime, and and Jane Holton explaining quite graphically her her response to um to Morrison's claim that vaccine acquisition is not a race. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I suppose I guess that sort of goes to my my point about I I thought it was really interesting that that Bridget McKenzie said it had been a really successful government, and I just kept wondering by what criterion and perhaps the criterion is literally just the centrality of the national party which certainly made itself more important as mm. time went by and extracted lots of resources and goods out of that time of office uh but you know we're we're actually still like living with the the, the legacy of of those decisions and changes and and to be blunt not not much of the legacy of that government of its actual legislative changes are still in place and its stage three tax cuts are are about to be amended some of the the most uh, successful innovative and bold bits of the education reforms were later watered down you know we're onto our third sub deal which you know at this stage labor's more likely to progress meaningfully. Um, I'm, I'm sort of struggling to think of of other initiatives that that easily kind of come to mind. And and the failure to adapt this country on climate change is an enormous economic loss and a massive giving up of our you know competitive advantage which yeah. pretty clearly large parts of the coalition still don't think is is an issue and is reflected in in you know the sort of subterranean policy um, and political moves around trying to attack the energy transition on the ground in rural Australia with with the sort of poles and wires uh, sort of stuff so they're sort of What's changed, I suppose? Yeah, and I mean the the head shaker or another head shaker is the the clip from how uh, from Abbott saying, "Well, uh, climate change is not a problem. In fact, it might be an advantage." <laughs> well, to, to the extent that it is a problem, <laughs> problem it's better. better. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that was that was just like you think. Well, yeah, that transforms us back. Mm, um, yeah, to those those bizarre years. Yeah, so the coalition's learned a lot about how to frame its arguments. Not like that, for example. Um, but is there a is there a 
paradigm shift or a kind of a values change in its private thinking. I think that what we might leave listeners with is this thought that Maria just mentioned, for example, the the decision to back out of the stage three tax cuts, and that's obviously been a big uh, a big play for Anthony Albanese to make, having to put his own integrity on the line to a degree. Uh, you know, he said, um, "My word is my bond," and 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 now he's changed that. I think they've changed it for reasons. They they seem to have done it quite effectively, and they've got the opposition voting for it as well. Um, but it will be interesting to think about. Uh, what the next iteration of the ABC's Inside the Party Room documentaries show about this period. How much dissent was there within the Cabinet? What what were some of the arguments that were being put forward? And that, that this, of course, won't be the only policy question. There will be other policy questions and other perhaps other concerns about how the government's travelling, perhaps how the government was travelling through the voice period, for example. What was being said? What did people think privately about whether the PM should have committed the government so absolutely and fully and frontally on election night in 2022? They're the sorts of questions. So these documentaries kind of educate us to about what's happened but also I think how to think about what might be going on under the surface as events unfold now. It seems to me that we're looking for the hero of the next <laughs> period, aren't we? I mean, you know, who's the hero of the show? For me, it was uh, bizarrely uh, Barnaby Joyce. I mean, he seemed to be the most uh, open about what he thought about and what he was going to do and what he did. Um, and so who are we looking at in the current political class, if mm. you like, who's going to be that person in this term and leading into the next election who's the hero yeah and and it'll be interesting to see what are the what are the issues uh, whether it be you know the the decision to stop qatar airlines coming in for example uh, you know um, the relationship with qantas you know some of the issues that came up have come up already in this term of government look um that's all speculation we we can we can do that in another couple of years time when we um or however long it is until there's a change of government, we get one of these documentaries again. But it's been a great pleasure, hopefully uh, uh, for you sitting at home or wherever you are listening to this, uh, been interesting to listen to as well. I've certainly enjoyed it. So Paul Pickering, uh, Maria Teflaga, thanks very much. Thank you for a great discussion, guys. Yeah, no, it was, I enjoyed it. It was great fun. And that is Democracy Sausage for this week. You can contact us by email at democracysausage at anu.edu.au. Uh, and um, do so and we'll see what we can do in terms of uh, um, responding or, or, or if you have uh, ideas for what we ought to do, we're always, we're always open to that. So look forward to any sort of feedback. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye for now. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. 
So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.